First, though, this was a story that we wanted to check in with the woman who was quoted in the Times columnist newspaper just a few days ago. Uh, shocking story coming out of Victoria. Victoria Nolan is the head of stakeholder relations and community engagement with CNIB, uh, guide dogs, also a blind rower training for the Paralympics. And that's what brought her to Victoria, B.C. But it was an incident of involving a ride with a taxi that has left her quite shaken and she joins me now to talk a little bit more about what exactly happened and Victoria Nolan thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. What happened to you this was just more than a week ago when you were in Victoria getting a taxi what happened? I ordered a taxi um, from Yellow Cab they have an app so I used the app and obviously put in the address Um, but the cab driver dropped me off at a completely different address and um, I kind of thought we were in the wrong place because I've been to this location before and I know that there's a ramp to get up to it Um, so I asked him if it was the right place I told him the number and the name of it and he said yeah it was the right place and I said do you mind walking me to the door because I won't be able to find it. Um, I'm blind, so I, I can't find the door on my own. Um, so he said he would help me. I got out of the cab and um, still had the door open. I, I have a guide dog, and I was putting the harness on my guide dog. Um, so the door was still open, and the, the cab driver actually drove away with the door open and left me there. Oh. And, and how far were you from where you would put in the app and where you wanted to be? So for a sighted person, it's not that far. Um, the number that I gave him was 285, and the number he dropped me off at was 170. Um, but the complication is it, it was in a plaza, and um, the plaza has two levels. So I would have had to get up to the second level and on the opposite side of the plaza. And um, I'm not from Victoria, and even if I was, that's a hard thing to do when you don't know where you are and you can't see. I just, uh, you must have, uh, I I mean, what was going through your mind when you're standing there and you realize that here's this driver who uh, not only did he take you to the wrong place, said he was going to help you and then took off? Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. It's not not the first time this has happened where I've been dropped off at the wrong place. Um, So I don't really, I don't get scared anymore. It's just frustrating. And um, yeah, to drive away with the door open after I'd asked for help, that's just, that's a whole other level. I was extremely upset, um, obviously. And I had a, an appointment, so it made me late for my appointment. Um, yeah, there's just so much going on, and, and all I'm trying to do is hold it together and get myself out of the situation. Uh, you mentioned uh, that you were blind. Uh, I probably should have start, started with this right off the top. Uh, you're a, a blind rower. You're, you're training for the Paralympics, and that's what's brought you uh, to Victoria for the training. Um, so, uh, Has this ever happened, or, or is anything to this extent, has this happened to you before? Unfortunately, yes, this has happened uh, many times, um, being dropped in the wrong location. And the other issue that I have with taxis is because I travel with a guide dog, I often get refused service because they don't want to take a dog in their car. So it's it's pretty frustrating because obviously I can't drive. I rely on taxis to get around. And um, yeah, so the, these challenges that I face just getting from point A to point B, um, it can be really daunting to even just leave your house.
Yeah. Uh, and as far as the guide dog goes, uh, I've uh, unfortunately covered stories of that happening before. And it, it's my understanding that it's like a workplace or any place that, that uh, a guide dog is allowed to go with somebody and, and they're not supposed to refuse service because of that. Yeah. So the law actually states that a person with their guide dog can go anywhere the general public can go, which makes sense. Like the access is for the person, not for the dog, right? The dog just happens to be there. So, um, did you did you call the company and and follow up and if so what did they say? Yeah, so I called the company. Um, I called the company and got put through to a manager, but only got their voicemail. Um, and so I left a, an explanation of what happened. I at that point broke down into tears because, like I said, I'd been holding it together, but then you know reliving it, going through it, and explaining it. Um, so I was crying on the answering machine message. I'm surprised that they didn't get back to me. It took five days and uh, it was following, you know, when this story got out into the media. Um, so, yeah, five days before they got back to me. Uh, so it wasn't until after uh, the Times columnist, the local paper, did the story that you heard back from the cab company. That's right. Uh, and when they did call you back, what did they say? The manager was very apologetic. Um told me that the driver was going to be suspended for three days and had to redo his accessibility training. So I was surprised that he had already undergone some accessibility training and would still, you know, do that to somebody. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they're apologetic, but I feel like this problem needs to be stopped, right? It's, it's not good enough to have it happen and then someone apologize to you. It needs to not happen in the first place. Um, I, don't, I don't know what the answer is. Did they give you any explanation? And not that there is a justification for it, but uh, on the one hand, I, I can see, even though it, it's it's against what the law states to not allow the dog, I mean, you could kind of see maybe if someone's afraid of dogs or they think the dog's going to make the cab dirty, I can at least see some some type of justification or at least somebody trying to justify that. But what I don't get is dropping you off at the wrong location. And I know others have come forward and said, this has happened to them. And like you said, it's happened before. Did they address that at all? Why on earth a driver would think it's okay to drop a person who is blind off at the wrong location? No, I mean, he tried to make excuses that didn't make sense. Um, Like I said, it was a plaza and he tried to say, well, the only address that you gave him was the plaza. So he thought he could drop you anywhere in the plaza. And I pointed out that even in the app, the actual unit number was there and then he checked in. He's like, oh, yeah, you're right. You know, like they they try to make excuses, but I, I don't know what the reason is. Uh, what can be done then? I mean, I, when I first read the story, too, it, it made me think of when there was such a big fight as far as bringing ride sharing in. One of the big arguments was that there are taxi companies that offer up accessible vehicles and they're a, a vital part of people who need help with mobility and need accessible vehicles. And then you hear about this happening and, and you you can't help but shake your head. What do you think needs to be done or what could be done to make sure this doesn't happen again? I think if there was some accountability outside of the taxi company, I don't know, you know, a bylaw or some kind of follow-up. Um, I mean, there's nothing really I can do about this. It's not against the law to drop me at the wrong address, right? So we need something in place so they're accountable. Um, I don't think we can rely on the taxi companies to follow up on that. And when the manager called you back, did the manager address also the fact that he took off while the door was still open? Yeah, not really, no. 
I, I don't know how you would explain that, right? There's no real excuse for that. Well, it's just it's just awful that this this has happened. But I'm glad that that you're sharing your story and, and putting it out there in, in hopes that something will change. Um, has it changed at all what uh, you do as far as your confidence level, or when you have to go out and get somewhere? Are are, are you are you wary taking a taxi, or or do you think of this more as hopefully a, a one off? Uh, absolutely, it affects me. If there's somewhere that I can avoid going, if I don't absolutely need to go. Um, chances are I'll avoid it. Um, You know, I have to be feeling particularly strong that day to go out and face it. Um, I do have to go out today. I don't have a choice, and I'm trying a new cab company. I'm hoping that will go well. All right. Well, Victoria, thank you so much for joining us and talking about this and raising awareness about this. And I really hope this never happens to you and doesn't happen to others uh, again. But thank you so much for joining us today. No problem. Thank you for sharing the story. Well, a pilot project for the use of electric kick scooters is going ahead. And that means people in six municipalities in this province will be able to use these kick scooters on the roads in specific places and the pilot project is to see how things go. One of the cities that will be taking part in this is the city of North Vancouver and mayor of North Van City, Linda Buchanan, joins me on the line now. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me, Jill. Uh, You were one of the the participants in the pilot project. So where will people be able to ride and use these electric kick scooters? So basically, um, the province has has green-lighted this this pilot project, which is fantastic. So it it allows them to be uh, riding within our mobility lanes. Um, But just even though the, the province has green-lighted it, there is a bit of work that we have to do at the local government level. Um, we do need to create street bylaws um, that really aligns with the provincial government, or the, sorry, the provincial legislation, and, and really make sure that every, you know, the rules of the road are understood in terms of who's able to do it, what they need to be wearing when they do it, and um, that they're following the same rules um, of cyclists on the road. So you and the five others will have to bring in your own bylaw. Do you have a timeline or do you know when that might happen? Yeah, we're looking at for the city, for my city, we're looking at the end of April uh, for staff to be bringing that back to us. So, you know, just in time, hopefully for spring and summer and and really giving people those options to be able to move throughout the city. Um, Yeah, I think, you know, we had applied for the pilot back in July of 2020 and so some of you know early initial work staff had started on already but um kind of stalled a little bit from the from the provincial side but now that it's uh, been given the green light they will be fastly putting that street bylaw together Uh, so looking at the government release that was put out today with some of the information on this uh, so right Mm -hmm. now they're they're not allowed technically on streets or sidewalks Uh, i don't know about north van city but in vancouver we see these things all the time they're already uh, a lot of people are using them is that happening in north van city as well yeah, we, yes, we do see uh, the occasional per- people who are do- who are doing that, and, and I think that's one of the things that we really, um, you know, that um, we know there's a lot of different options when we're talking about micromobility, so there's lots of options, and this is giving people more options uh, with, and choices, which are good, but there is confusion and sometimes conflict with with these devices. So I think really what we want to explore is are, you know, what are the rules and regulations and really trying to decrease risks um, and and the conflict between different road users. 
Um, but we're very excited about the project and being able to give people different choices. Um, but yes, uh, technically, as I said at the top, uh, you know, just because the province has green lighted, uh, green lit this, um, we still have, you know, our bylaws to put in place before they are officially legal to use. Uh, and so the provincial rules right now saying uh, that the rules for an e-scooter, these e-kick scooters, uh, same as an e-bike, that if you're using an electric kick scooter, uh, you have to be 16 or older, you have to wear a helmet, and you have to follow the rules of the road for cyclists. Uh, you do not need to have a driver's license or insurance to be using an electric kick scooter. Uh, are you going to take it further or do you anticipate taking that further, bringing in more regulations in your city? Uh, I, I don't think so. I think what we're going to do is, is create the street bylaw that aligns with what the provincial legislation is. And, you know, the great thing about having uh, the pilot is that it allows us to work with residents um, and explore, you know, for those who are using the the electric scooters, what their experience has been for those who aren't and there's been conflict, what their experience has been. And I think what the pilot allows us to do is really learn from from everybody and, and adapt as we move forward. So for now, I think we're going to align it with uh, provincial legislation and then we'll learn from how it starts to roll out through the pilot, we'll learn from the other cities as well in terms of what they're experiencing and, and then adjust as, as we need. Uh, are you concerned at all? You, you talked a little bit about the conflicts and the fact that we are already seeing conflicts with these scooters and not just the, the scooters on the roads so with, with uh, electric bikes, normal bikes, pedestrians, cars, scooters. There's a lot of people that are using the same spaces. Uh, are you mm-hmm. concerned at all that they don't require insurance and that, that with the possibility of conflicts or, or crashes involving these devices? Um, no, no, I think, you know, I think what we've seen, uh, you know, in other areas that have explored that, that it actually is a barrier to getting people out moving in different ways when you start to regulate it in that way. Uh, you know, certainly we have children who are who are on bicycles and, and other users. So I think really, you know, for far too long, we've we've designed road space specifically for, for cars in mind. And, you know, this leaves people without options for getting around in their community. So people like seniors and uh, students who don't drive and people who, who are using wheelchairs and walkers. And I think, you know, we want to be focusing on different options for moving and connecting people in other ways. And this is an example that allows people who want to have this option to be able to, to do that. And so how can we uh, provide options to move people safely around their community? So the pilot gives us this opportunity opportunity to explore more, like I said, and then we, we will adapt as we move forward. And do you anticipate this being a pilot that will be for people that have purchased their own kick scooters or, or is it going to be something like the Moby Bike Project where there'll be stations and people can rent the scooters? Um, I think for now it's going to be uh, personal electric scooters um, and we'll look to uh, we'll look to we're actually looking at an electric bike share program we should be announcing that in a couple of weeks so might be another opportunity to have a conversation <laughs> with you about that <laughs> Excellent. But, um, but right now we're we're just looking at launching a, an electric bike share program um, and this will be specific for uh, personal owned electric scooters uh, because some of the issues with the scooter in other jurisdictions, I think it is at 
Santa Monica in California, uh, one of the problems with the rentals were it wasn't like a Moby bike station, but it was the, the scooter was linked to your phone. And when you were done, you kind of just tossed it on wherever you left it. And they were finding mountains of, of uh, the battery dead scooters at the end of the day, the company would have to come and scoop them up. But it was becoming a huge issue for people just walking or getting by on the sidewalks. And I think there are some people that might be concerned. That's what's uh, what's being looked at here. Yeah, no, absolutely not. And I would share those concerns. I've certainly been in those cities where where they've had, uh, you know, the sort of the dockless um, scooters. And I think, you know, again, when we're really looking at trying to provide more options for people and and get people out walking and and giving people choices, we want to make sure, particularly for our most vulnerable um, population, so those with mobility issues or who... um, uh, have seeing, uh, you know, um, seeing problems, you know, we don't want to make any more barriers for them within the community. So anything we want to do is going to make sure that, you know, that they are, um, so these, these are personal devices, so people will be taking care of their own personal device. And with our e-bike share, it would be it's, it's docking or, or havens uh, that people leave them to. But certainly I'm not, uh, it, it, I am not looking at having people just drop them wherever they, wherever their end of their trip is. Doesn't work for it. Doesn't work for people. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. Um, just wanted to ask you about enforcement with, with the pilot project and it then becoming legal to be mm-hmm. riding these scooters on the roadways and sharing the roadways with other users. Will there be enforcement and education so that people know? Because there are so many of these things that are on sidewalks and in in bike paths and 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 seawall paths. Will there be enforcement letting people know that's not the place to ride the scooter? Absolutely. So I think, you know, part of the pilot as well will include our, our local um, RCMP de- detachment. And, and again, as we start to, to, to develop the street bylaw, staff will be working with them. Um, so that'll be part of what comes forward in the bylaw and, and what the enforcement, sort of what the infractions will be. Um, but also then a plan in terms of we have a safe mobility strategy uh, in the city. And so part of that is education and enforcement. So um, this this pilot will be included within uh, the, the uh, big moves that we want to see within our safe mobility strategy. So it'll all be tied to other policy documents that we have in the city. All right. Well, I look forward to learning more about the e-bike share program as well. We'll have you back on to talk about that. But thanks so much for joining us to talk about the scooter program. Thanks so much for having me, Jill. And I look forward to talking to you about the e-bike. Well, Royal LePage, as you've been hearing in the news, is out with its annual recreational property survey, taking a look at where the demand is, the property forecast. And in British Columbia, the recreational market is forecast to increase by about 13%. And that's kind of on the lower side compared to some other provinces and other parts of the country. Is it the big debate between cottage and cabin? And are we redefining what recreational property Property is for as many more people are working from home. Well, to find out more about what is happening right here in BC, we have reached Frank Ingham, associate broker with Royal LePage Sussex. And Frank, thank you so much for being with us and joining us uh, to talk a little bit more about this today. It is uh, great to have you on the show. How are you today? Uh, very well. Thanks so much for, for talking about this. Uh, some interesting numbers when we take a look at recreational properties and uh, I guess the, the price is going up. They're becoming even more popular. Boy, that's sure happening. Absolutely. In the whistler Pemberton area where I do a lot of work at it, but also some on the Sunshine Coast, uh, 
Yeah, the shelves are bare, Jill. That's the problem. No inventory. Uh, so is that because during the pandemic, people have realized they can work remotely and they're, and they're moving further out? Or what is it that you see happening as far as uh, recreational properties? Well, that's certainly a good part of it. Uh, in the Pembroke Valley, for example, we, we recently got uh, TELUS Fiber Optics here last year. So that was a game changer for us because a lot of remote areas either don't have <laughs> internet or good internet access so when that came here that really became a game changer for people to do their zoom meetings all day long and whatever else they had going on Uh, so what has this done then you mentioned uh, supply is scarce what has this done to prices well they've certainly increased um and probably you know it's hard to say because they're very sizes of property, acreages, or or even smaller condo townhouse units, but we're probably definitely a 10 to 15% increase over last year. And is it people that are are selling, say, in in cities or more urban areas and moving out? Or uh, I thought I saw a survey, a Royal LePage survey as well, that showed a lot of younger people say if they can, they'd actually choose to, to live somewhere a bit more remote. Well, we're definitely seeing that happening. Um, people, because of the workability and being able to work from home now, would move to the smaller communities. You get a more community sense of feeling, and you can have your two dogs instead of one or none here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then all the toys, be it a snowmobile or a outdoor uh, equipment or whatever you're doing, you can have all that stuff here. And, of course, the mountains are right there out your back door to make it happen. So. Uh, and the, the buyers as well, uh, I was looking, and in Atlantic Canada, a bit of a different story. Uh, they're noticing a lot of buyers from out of province. Uh, in BC, is it people uh, coming to BC and trying to get their hands uh, on recreational properties as well? I haven't noticed that in my particular case. Um, the majority of our folks are coming from the lower mainland and or the other thing, of course, is young people, because the mortgage rates are so low, are now able to get into a home Sometimes it's the bank of mom and dad that helps, but you know when rents are uh, here, uh, twelve hundred bucks for one bedroom, eighteen two thousand for two bedroom. Well, that's a that's a pretty nice mortgage payment. So if you can come up with that down payment to get in the game, then it really works. And mortgage rates at one point five percent are insanely low. So why rent when you can buy something? Right, but I guess that that comes back to what you mentioned earlier too. Is it sounds like even finding a place to to buy in some areas and where you are is becoming very difficult. It's extremely difficult. We're probably about a third of our normal inventory. And do you anticipate that's going to change anytime soon? More stuff comes on. Well, we expect to see more inventory coming on, but then you have the other situation where, well, if I sell, where am I going to go? Because there's nothing to buy. <laughs> Kind of catch twenty two. Yeah. yeah. Uh, when we when we're talking about recreational property, uh, do people still kind of uh, we tend to think of cottages, perhaps uh, places that uh, are are seasonal. Uh, is that kind of a, an archaic or an outdated way then of thinking about recreational property? Well, I think in some ways it is because you know the cabin that you had, you can now if you're really out there, you can put solar panels or whatever into it, but. If you have that internet access uh, wherever you are, a cabin now becomes your home and, and you don't need something. Or or people are looking at having a pie de terre in, in the city so they can do their once a month meetings or whatever happens 
work-wise, but then come back to their, quote, cabin, which now becomes their home. Which makes uh, makes a lot of sense, although I guess depending on where you are in that scenario, too, uh, some cities and that you're you're then worrying about uh, empty homes taxes and other taxes uh, that are going to spring up as well. Yes, definitely a situation. And of course, in areas like us, including Whistler, we don't have those empty home taxes. So that's been driving some some other business this way as well. Uh, you mentioned uh, as well that you're you're hoping that that more inventory will come on, but again, uh, unclear if that that's going to happen. Where would the next area be then? When we're talking about kind of the Whistler Pemberton, as that becomes more popular, where do you see things going uh, as people, I guess, start moving even further out? Well, we're getting people moving from Squamish to Pemberton now because Squamish is getting too big. But the next area from here, obviously, is another hour and a half up the road to to Lillooet, and you can buy a house there for you know three or four hundred thousand dollars which is going to get you a condo maybe in Pemberton so you've got to go that much further uh, to get something less expensive and some people are doing that and I would imagine it's the same thing uh, with talking about the Sunshine Coast where that used to be considered kind of remote and out there and from what I understand even talking to people that live there uh, you can't find a place it's become so expensive and again the inventory is a big concern Yes, exactly the same scenario and in, on the Sunshine Coast, and that even including Powell River. I mean, their numbers are up 18% uh, price-wise, so, and that's a two-ferry ride from Vancouver. So even going that much further <laughs> isn't, isn't helping the situation. And again, we kind of touched on this. Do you think, is this being driven by the pandemic, and, and you mentioned the, the low interest rates? Is it kind of all of those factors that have come together? I would say so. People are just rethinking. I can also tell you that there was a lot of folks uh, not buying prior to pre-pandemic, thinking that the sky was going to fall, that the rates were going to change, and that uh, housing prices would come down. So there was a lot of people sitting on the fence in 2018, 2019. And then when pandemic came out, they went, uh-oh, now what are we going to do? Well, now is the time. Let's make the move. We've been sitting around waiting and everybody jumped in at the same time, and that also caused the rest of the problem. Well, we'll wait to, and see what happens as we get into what is generally a more busy time or, or a busy time in the spring. Uh, Frank Ingham, thanks so much for joining us to talk about this today. Appreciate it. Hey, it's a real pleasure talking to you, Jill. Have a great day. Well, Jordan Tinney, who is the superintendent of Surrey Schools, put out a memo to staff saying he is pleased to confirm that with Dr. Henry's messaging and consistent with that messaging of prioritizing K-12 staff, they have now been given approval to work with the Fraser Health Authority to provide vaccinations to our K-12 school-based staff. And they are currently in the process of working with the Health Authority to determine the schedule and to figure out exactly how that is going to happen. Uh, He goes on to say this is very welcome news. The Board of Education and all of the partners uh, were all playing roles in making this come to fruition and that more information is on the way. We also heard from Dr. Bonnie Henry yesterday during the briefing that health officials were also looking at targeting businesses in some of the communities that are seeing the biggest spread of the virus and one of those communities is in the city of Surrey. So what does that mean for businesses? Let's bring in Surrey Board of Trade CEO Anita Huberman, who joins me on the line now. Thanks so much for being with us. Good afternoon, Jill. Uh, what would you like to see, or, or does the Board of Trade have a, a position on this? What could work or would be beneficial as far as targeting some businesses in Surrey? 
Well, the Surrey Board of Trade, we've been communicating actively with the B.C. government and uh, with Minister Ravi Kalon as well through the COVID industry engagement table about different businesses such as in our manufacturing sector uh, that need uh, very customized options related to vaccination. Uh, there are large work yards. Um, the virus spread is uh, quite possible in a very high way. So we're looking at very active solutions. And Jill, we know that in Surrey, our virus cases are higher than in any other city within the Fraser Health region, uh, though declining um, slowly. But uh, we need customized solutions. And we're so pleased that uh, both the BC government and the provincial health officer and her office are looking at working with businesses and have been doing so um, with emails that I've received from our members in different industries uh, needing that customized support. Uh, do you think there are certain businesses then, uh, as you kind of touched on there, where there's, whether it's manufacturing or production businesses, where it's really difficult, to, if at all possible, to distance uh, that, that targeting those businesses or, or getting the vaccine to those businesses first would be the priority? I would say yes, in concert with what's happening uh, with our school system, uh, frontline workers, uh, our police, our ambulance services, and so forth. Um, it's also our agricultural sector. Farming season uh, is uh, active now, and a third of our land base is agricultural. We have a number of food processing plants, the greatest number of manufacturers, um, I think um, all of those pieces need to be mitigated when it comes to virus transmission. And uh, we're working uh, with the B.C. government on that, on that measure. Uh, is it a challenge, though, trying to figure out uh, wh when you put a lineup together or try and figure out how to prioritize the vaccine? How do you uh, determine whether a food processing plant is say, more important than a farming operation or figuring out who should be at the top of the list? It's very challenging. Remember, this is the first time that we're rolling out uh, a vaccination program of its kind. And, uh, and certainly, um, I know that the province and, and we're learning as we're going along as well. So as soon as, for example, last week we heard about the vaccination rollout, um, I started receiving emails from uh, steel, uh, steel manufacturers within Surrey. Uh, within other social service uh, segments saying, you know, why aren't we included? And so I think uh, there's always going to be that when you roll out a vaccination program of this kind. And I know that the province is looking at this uh, daily in terms of uh, who should be prioritized, who should be next. And, uh, and Surrey, you know, we do need to pay attention to Surrey because of the number of virus cases and transmission that we've had. Do you think that by prioritizing the schools as well, is it possible that has a trickle-down effect as far as uh, if students are, are in environments where there isn't as much transmission, uh, does that trickle down to households and households maybe with people that are working in businesses in Surrey uh, are, are better protected that way as well? Well, I think uh, paying attention to vaccination in schools is important. Um, not all parents are going to be vaccinated uh, at the same time as, as teachers are, for example. So we need to maintain, especially these next two months, 
um, all of the health and safety protocols, whether it's in your household, whether it's in your workplace, um, as the vaccination rollout continues. I mean, we're, we're not out of this yet. Uh, no, we uh, are, are absolutely are not. And uh, those reminders uh, keep coming in those briefings as well. Um, do you fear that there could be some pushback in that uh, that that Surrey would kind of get bumped ahead on the list or businesses would get bumped ahead uh, with other businesses in other parts of the province might say, well, wait a minute, we, we're just as important. We need this too. Certainly, you know, that's to be expected. Uh, but Surrey, unfortunately, has the highest number of virus cases and transmission. And uh, there needs to be customized approaches sometimes during this uh, COVID-19 pandemic in order to mitigate virus transmission. So I understand that concern uh, from uh, the rest of British Columbia, uh, but certainly uh, we're trying to just uh, just work and, and be fair to everyone involved in terms of what's happening in our city. Uh, how are businesses doing? Uh, I know we've talked to you several times about this uh, and about uh, some working at reduced capacity and, and trying to make ends meet. How are they doing? Well, we're seeing in our last labor market intelligence report uh, for Surrey that 30,000 jobs were recovered. Still a 9,000 job gap exists. Uh, you know, Surrey businesses are really looking forward. They're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. One in 25 businesses have shut down, though, uh, but uh, that we still fare better, not only in Surrey, but all of British Columbia. We have fared very well economically in comparison to other provinces and territories in our nation. Uh, but the hardest hit industries, we have to still pay attention to them, the restaurants, our tourism, hospitality, arts, culture, events sector, uh, they're the ones that provide the foundation of uh, and our livability within our city. All right. Anita Hopperman, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for joining the program. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for being with us on this Tuesday afternoon. Well, we are talking about a story about dogs, about an owner who thought he had 20 or 30 dogs. It turns out he had a lot more than that. And Eileen Drever is with me now, Senior Protection Officer with the BC SBCA. Thanks so much, Eileen, for joining us today. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for the invitation. Oh, I know when people first saw these numbers, it was a bit of a double take for many. I think some thought that the numbers were wrong. But how did this unfold and what did crews with the SPCA discover when they responded to this? Well, it all started off with the RCMP attended a property way up north and um, the, uh, the member spoke to one of our investigating officers the investigating officer, he was concerned that there, there was a large number of dogs on the property. As a result of that phone call, the owner of the dog spoke with our officer and explained that he would like to surrender the dogs to the society. He said he had, he wasn't quite sure of the numbers, but he said it was between 20 and 30 dogs. Well, normally we, you know, taking 20 to 30 dogs, that's, that's huge for us. So we have to make sure we have the, the space available. So it took about two days and we planned to drive, it was four and a half hours north of Fort Nelson, I believe. 
drove up there with all the crates to bring these dogs back down. And we got there and the investigating officer was quite taken aback when she wasn't quite sure the number of dogs herself because she didn't go into the trailer. Unfortunately, the, the door to the trailer was frozen, was closed. It was frozen and it could not be opened. So the owner was handing the dogs out through a window and the dogs were in crates. Well, she got to the number about 35 to 40, and uh, clearly there were a lot more than 35 to 40 dogs. So to cut this a huge long story short, um, between we, we received assistance between the RCMP and firefighters, and they were able to gather more crates, and as a result, we ended up taking 119 dogs. Now, 88 dogs came from one trailer that consisted of 75 dogs and 13 puppies and 31 dogs from another trailer. So um, staff and the firefighters and the RCMP, were it, it, it was phenomenal the work they did to, to get these dogs out of there and transfer to the shelter. You've been with the SPCA for, for quite a while. Have you ever seen anything like this before? I, I have seen something like this. I have never seen 119 dogs um, being surrendered to the society from two trailers. And where did he get all the dogs? Obviously, as you said, there were puppies. The dogs were, were reproducing. But how did he get in this situation? Mm-hmm. Well, we don't know. It's still under investigation, Jill. Um, the, the file is still open. But clearly, um, as I said earlier to you, that we normally have to prepare to take in any dog, but we could not leave any dogs in this situation. That's why we decided to take all of them. Uh, thankfully, he just surrendered them. Had he failed to do that, we would then, we would then have to go in with a warrant to remove them. Um, so the the owner, he was just as vulnerable as the animals. Hmm. The situation was just horrific. Uh, and uh, I think people who have seen this story or heard this uh, will know the dogs weren't in great shape. What, what kinds of problems were the dogs dealing with? Oh, these poor wee things. Some were heavily, heavily matted. And the mats consisted of feces and urine. And that can cause an infection in the skin and it's pulling in the skin. So that's causing distress in itself. Others had overgrown nails. Um, There were quite a few with uh, major periodontal disease, ear infections, hernias. It was just, just a lot of medical issues. How long do you think this situation had been going on? I have no idea, but looking at some of these dogs in the mats, that would take some time. Um, and they're really quite fearful as well. They're, they're not used to the noises. They're not used to being outside the trailer. They're, used to, uh, they're not used to a lot of people either. Um, and it, it's going to take some time for them to come around. We're working with their, their physical problems, but we're also working with the psychological issues they have too. Uh, and uh, they look like a, a mix of dogs. Do you know what ki- what kind of breeds uh, they are? Well, they're all they're all small breeds. There's some Shih Tzus and uh, Papillons, Terriers, but um, 
it, it's hard to say. It's hard to say. But you know, if you if you've seen the video, if you looked at the photographs, it's just heartbreaking. You know, they they're so trusting. They're terrified. They want to come up to you. They want the loving, and. Thankfully, in just the short time that we've had them, they're making a huge turnaround. Well, that's that is good to to hear and to, mm. to, to hear that for sure. Where are they all now? Well, they they're in shelters up and down the province and over in Vancouver Island. So when these animals will be uh, healthy to be adoptable, then we will announce that because we've had lots of inquiries, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it takes a special person to adopt an animal that's got problems. You know, it's, it really, they, they'll come around eventually, but don't expect these wee souls to be like any other dog. It just, they, there's, there's, they have special needs. Because, like you said, with the, fra- the uh, trailer door being frozen, did you know if these dogs have even been outside? I, I personally don't know. I don't believe they have. I'm just, I don't believe they have, but, um, and they're all relying on one another. They, you know, initially they're so used to being in this little herd, if you will. Um, and to be taken away from that's really stressful for them, but it's amazing to see the turnaround in just a short period of time. And like you said, this is a case too. So, so it doesn't sound like, and I know the investigation's continuing, but it doesn't sound like this was somebody who was breeding these dogs or selling these dogs, but just something uh, really got out of control. I think, I think so. I think so. Uh, there's no evidence that there were these puppies, dogs were being sold. But again, the investigation's open. And once it closes, we'll look at all the facts and then determine whether or not to recommend charges to crime counsel. Um, in the in the meantime, I would imagine, like you said, this was a huge undertaking to get these dogs out, to get them to the various different shelters. That's got to be expensive as well. Well, we could not do the work that we do if it wasn't for the public. We just couldn't. And I can't thank the public enough for, for always being there for the animals. And yes, it's a huge strain on our resources. Um, and if anybody would like to help, please uh, go to our website. You can either help by making a donation or alternatively, if you would like to foster a dog that could perhaps be pregnant, that would be great too. Um, we're always looking for foster homes. We don't want to see these dogs give birth in a shelter, obviously. Hmm. And, and how many of, of dogs, how many are you looking at that are pregnant that would need foster care? I don't know the, I don't know the numbers, Jill, but um, we'll get back to you with that. Even if it's not, if you're not going to foster one of these particular dogs, we always need a list of people who are willing to foster because we get animals coming in that are pregnant or have had uh, puppies. And if you're willing to take them on and foster them, that would be amazing. So can people go on right now to uh, the, the BCSPCA website? I know you've put out some pictures and even the, the transformation of the dogs, like you talked about with the, the mats and the fur, uh, to see them cleaned up. They, they look absolutely amazing. Uh, can people go mm-hmm. on and see them now or do they have to wait until they're kind of more at a, at a better, in a better place? I think, yeah, I think we have to wait until they're in a better place. We'll be providing the the public with updates, so please go to our website. Um, And it's just, it's so heartwarming seeing the before and the after pictures. But remember, um, physically they look okay, but psychologically we need to work with them.
All right. Well, it is uh, it is so great, again, uh, like you said, to see them uh, this looking better. Still a, a long road ahead. Uh, Eileen, we'll be waiting to hear uh, when they are able to be adopted and fostered out, and we'll certainly follow up with you uh, then and uh, hopefully get a bit more, uh, we'll get uh, a bit of a follow-up on it then. But thanks so much for coming on the program, for joining us today. You're very welcome. You take care, and thanks again for everybody's support. 911.